Hello, Monetization Nation. In the last episode with Kashmia, we discussed how to build a brand community and the benefits it can bring us. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how we can take advantage of lucky opportunities. So why don't you share with us some of the stories you've seen around recurring revenue at the products you've been at, some some advice maybe that you could share, secrets and tips about effectively implementing and growing recurring revenue streams within a business? Um, across the board, one thing um, to keep in mind as a marketer when you think about recurring services is, is this concept around like bundling. What are you just, what are you adding to that uh, cost that the, the, the customer is paying on a monthly basis? So it's not just that you're getting one particular service. In the case of Shonasaki, which is stock assets. In the case of GoHenry, it's access to a debit card and the application. It's other things that come with it. And as a brand, you start to think about the value you're providing over the long term. And I think Amazon Prime is a great example of that. You pay the monthly fee, but you're getting all these uh, particular things over time. And I think that's something across the board. And I'll get into some of the other um, ways to continue, continuously to build on that. But just keep that in mind when you're thinking about recurring service uh, or, or um, recurring revenues. What else are you going to be providing the user? So in the case of Shutterstock, um, you know, you bought stock assets, but then we give you a free editing tool. So you can download the assets, you can edit all of the, the tool, the edit, edit the assets, and then publish them as you as you want to. Um, at, at GoHenry, it's the application, it's the card, but you're also getting educational feedback. You're getting a relationship with the parents and the kids to better understand what are those milestones your child is hitting. There's allowance, there's all these things that you do inside of the platform that you wouldn't be able to do if you just had a prepaid debit card. Um, Fiverr, they start to build uh, a recurring revenue model with some of the B2B products. And all of that is to, uh, to help not just like provide the service, but add additional things. So there's things that you need to just keep in mind. It can't just be, I have a service and we're just going to go out there and continue to make money. It's got to be iterative over time and keep adding that value. And I keep mentioning Amazon Prime because you get so much value out of the, the 120, mm-hmm. whatever it is you pay on, a monthly, on an annual basis. I would never um, even consider turning off my Amazon Prime account because it's so much value. Exactly. So again, it used to be that you just get free shipping uh, within a few days and then it's evolved into video. Now you get music. Now I use it to store photos. You st- if you start looking at all the benefits for that 120 bucks you pay for the year, you realize that uh, you've built a relationship with them that's harder to leave. And that's the other key part of it is as you provide more and more features, you get the customer really ingrained in who you are as a brand and what you're providing so that should they decide at one point, you know, I don't need them for this particular thing. Well, there's five other things that you use them for and you can't just leave that um, on the table either. Um, in general, in terms of, you know, recurring services, um, other things, especially tactical things that you want to uh, start to keep in mind. One is um, keeping a, a healthy dialogue with uh, the user. So again, providing value, but not in, in sort of services, but actual um, content engagement. Um, two is actually spending um, a little bit more time in uh, letting them see a, a bit of what you're providing into the service. So I think for us as a uh, tech company, you start to realize the community only cares about certain features um, and they'll continue to pay you for that, but they'll stick around longer if you're, uh, you feel lucky, if you sort of open the curtains a little bit and let them see what's happening behind the scenes. Um, and then the sort of the last bit is start to play around with uh, the bundling a little bit, the pricing. And so uh, one, you want to keep recurring revenue going on a consistent basis, but you might be able to get more if you start to think about 
uh, either shorter terms, uh, move away from the monthly recurring to six months to annuals to stop playing around with how you do pricing. Because you might realize that a customer who um, is on a month to month could be spending more time with you as a brand over two years if you offer them an annual agreement. It might be less upfront, but long-term you get the LTV value out of that. So there's like different mechanisms on pricing that you should definitely consider uh, that most brands don't do because you start to see that revenue come in on a regular basis and you get excited about that. But as you, if you play around with pricing a little bit, you might get them to stick around a bit longer. So certain levers um, you just have to keep in mind, like what's important to you? Is it uh, monthly recurring revenue or is it uh, an eight-year LTV? And if that's more important, then you need to start thinking about how to build that relationship over time. What have you seen is the best way to optimize that uh, lifetime value? It's really customizing the product to your different customer segments. Um, so we do that at, um, at Go Henry now. We look at our different segments. Our pricing is, is the same across the board, but you get different things at different points. So there's custom cards for teens. If you are a teenager at, at uh, a price point, if you start out at a younger age, your parents make that decision. But you start to get a different experience as you uh, get older. Same thing at Shortestack. You've got different customer segments who need your particular product at different points for different reasons. And so we have, uh, we've actually, when I was there, we started to evolve and test with different uh, pricing models and packages. So Shutterstock traditionally had an offered um, like 10 packs, for example, or five packs, just images that you could download and use for marketing or, or branding, whatever you need it for, but they had to do the competition. But also if you look at the segment, we had marketers for the first time who were getting onto the platform. Like, I don't need a monthly description. I just need 20 images. How do I do that? Or a big one was real estate. Real estate agents, uh, again, for the first time were going online, really wanted to engage with um, potential homeowners and they just wanted a 25 pack. So starting to uh, shift a little bit of, of your product to meet the needs of those consumer segments and then starting to evolve off of that. So if you offer a pack for 20 bucks, maybe they want it for a six month term because that's what they do. If they're real estate agents, summertime is, is when they're making money, give them a six month uh, offer and see how that turns out. So again, customizing your, uh, recurring revenue of the product to make sure that you're hitting the right segment. Otherwise, you might be losing out on a, on a potential growing segment by not customizing that particular offering to them. I love it. Any other stories or secrets about recurring revenue you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that, uh, you know, I wasn't really involved in, in the uh, entire pricing um, scheme at Shutterstock, but what I found when we're especially on the marketing front is we're uh, trying to acquire customers and, and engage with them. What I found is that... Um, Customers who really care about your products and so think about top of the funnel, how they search, where they find you, don't necessarily always care about the cost because they find value in other ways. Um, I found that at, at five or two, especially since early on, we started at, at $5 and uh, now the, the average order value is, is much higher. Um, they'll do research, but how you build a brand, how you communicate, what types of content you provide, ultimately make the decision of whether or not someone uh, buy the particular product and how, and whether or not they stick around, right? So I think our theme of, of this entire conversation is around this community content layer because you can get a customer to come in. You can pay $100 on Google or Facebook to get them, get them in, but how do you keep them on the platform so that they become valuable customers over time? And that really comes down to the content and the relationship you have with them and how you're communicating the values of your brand and what they get out of the service um, over time. And if you're a recurring revenue um, business, you need to keep that in mind because it's the only way you're going to continue to build a longer relationship with your customers. Yeah. Yeah. So how did Fiverr do that? How did they go from being known as, you know, the gig economy for five bucks to getting a higher ticket value? 
part of it was just um, us doing a lot of work with, um, you know, press, like reminding them constantly. I mean, the line that we used to always use, um, we have services more than $5. It's not just $5. And we have to constantly remind them. And I think part of it was um, efforts on our end, on the branding side to be able to do that. But then it also came back to uh, the way we positioned the actual sellers. And when we talk about the seller community, I think what's really important um, coming out of the community efforts uh, was the content that was generated. So you start to get community members who have been really successful in selling their services. They're making you know, $10, $15 a gig or even more starting out. And they talk about that. So it's no longer just, I'm just making $5 on a gig. It's 15, 20, 30. And as they're starting to talk about the experience and how to make money on the platform, that naturally becomes an opportunity for press and for PR. So we had a lot of stories um, in our early days about people who made $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 a month or a quarter because they actually put the time and effort into building the business on top of Fiverr. And what you realize is when you have a story that is focused on, hey, I made $10,000 a, a month, it's no longer about the particular $5 service, but it's about the accumulation of uh, the amount you'll make. And that slowly starts to shift the conversation um, about one gig, but um, it's about the entire business. And, right. and then you start to realize as a, as a consumer, when you get on the platform, yeah, I could buy something for $5, but the product was structured in such a way that $5 offers you a specific set of features. But if you want more, it becomes uh, 10, 20, 15, 20, uh, 30, and it keeps going up. Um, so the product was also designed in a way that moved away slowly from just a $5 service offering to um, other types of, of, of buckets and, and the pricing started to match that. Yep. Another thing you say you like to talk about is how companies can be lucky. You want to mention that? Yeah. So, um, you know, personal story, and then I'll get into the, the um, company side. So personal stories, I, I, I remember this quote really early on from Warren Buffett about, you know, luck plays a role in our lives, regardless of how we know it. it's something along those lines. And he often says, um, he's lucky to be born here in the U.S. If he could have been easily born in Bangladesh uh, to a farmer and his life would have been completely different. And I think part of that is, has always stuck with me because I've had a very untraditional um, path to where I am today. And I, I went to college right before the financial crisis. I came out of it during the financial crisis in 2008. Um, and I wanted to be a teacher. And I've always valued the teachers in my life who have helped me become who I am today. And so I wanted to give back. I've realized very quickly, no one's hiring teachers um, out of a financial crisis, and it's really hard to get a job in education, even though I'd already gone into grad school. And so I quickly pivoted to uh, the sort of marketing tech space and, and had, took an internship over the summer, absorbed as much as I could. And I often say I'm very lucky to be where I am because I've had certain moments in my life where um, if, if I wasn't in the right situation at the right time, I might not have been able to take advantage of it. So part of, of my career has been just being prepared for when those opportunities come. And I've, I've been more conscious of that over the years. And I try to think about it in the same way uh, for the, the brands that I've worked with. And there's a couple of these stories along the way, you know, the biggest example, uh, it sort of led to this uh, really cool relationship we had with the journalists. Um, when I started early on at Fiverr, and I give you a lot of Fiverr examples because it was kind of the first time where we got to try a bunch of different things. Marketing was relatively new for the company. And we had a journalist reach out and she was trying to do a study around uh, beauty and what does beauty mean to uh, the people in the US? How does it mean to different people in different countries? And didn't really think about it much. She asked for credit. She was like, hey, can you give me a couple hundred dollars credit? I just want to do this experiment, see what happens. 
uh, inbox, the message came to me. I gave her credit. Uh, she reached out two weeks later. She's like, oh, I have this, like all this information. It's a really cool concept. I'm building. I want to talk about it. So I think at the time, our team was really structured well. We had a couple of community managers. We had uh, a couple of writers. Content was flowing. We were in a good place. We had a forum. We had a blog. And she put together this really cool concept where she reached out to 25 different designers or 24 different designers around the world and sent a, a headshot of herself and said, make me look beautiful. Or what does beauty look to you? And what she got back was this amazing viewpoint from those designers in the country of their perception of beauty. And while it seems like on the surface, just like a, a very fun project, what it did for, the, for us as a brand was the moment she published it, it just took off. You know, we, within the first couple of days, I, if I remember correctly, looking, thinking about the sheet uh, for press coverage, we had over 125 uh, media outlets not only cover her piece, but reference us in that actual article. Wow. The next morning, uh, GMA had her on talking about um, her experiment using our platform to build that. And that same day she went live, um, I'll never forget this because I had tickets to go uh, see the NBA draft in Brooklyn. Brooklyn had just opened up the new stadium and we were getting so much traffic. We had to try to capitalize on all the traffic. They were building a landing page. I was um, chatting with the team in Israel. They were, they were in the evening. And while I was at the NBA draft, the, the Barclays Center had Wi-Fi. And I'm sitting there on my computer watch, trying to watch the NBA draft, but also build this landing page with her um, pictures and stories and, and trying to build a, an experience so that when members come in, they get that experience. And why, the reason why we were so lucky is because she came to us. Um, it just happened to take off because the topic of conversation was around beauty. It's something everyone has a say, but we were ready. We were ready to take advantage of not only just the traffic, but the story, the opportunity. And we were able to build an experience for every customer that came in, wanted to chat about that. Uh, we showcase exactly all those artists who actually put together the concepts. Um, and then we built a narrative and story around uh, who she was as a journalist, why the story mattered to her and where it's headed. We had uh, conversations across the company on how, do we, how can we start to do more of this? And what you've quickly realized, you just can't, you can't replicate um, success like that when it's uh, hits, it's like a lightning storm. It just comes and it goes. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we replicate that. But I think in that, that situation, we're so lucky. The great thing about that story was not only do we get brand um, coverage and, and uh, GMA, Today Show, they all covered it. But what's great is like she actually took that opportunity to build a relationship with us and um, spoke at a TEDx event uh, about her experience working with us and her experience on uh, building this story. And to this day, I still get uh, people reaching out to go, I heard this amazing story on what you guys did. How did you do it? And for me, it's just a story about we were, we were there at the right moment, but we had the right team and we were ready to take on something like that. And I think a lot of brands miss out on opportunities because they're just not ready for that opportunity when it hits. And, and you weren't just ready for it. You were also looking for it. You were you were trying to identify that. And when you saw something that hit, you, you knew you had something that was going to hit. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's definitely part of it too. It's, it's having the right team to realize this is something, it's something big. Often you get indicators, right? You get um, press hits, you get traffic. I think for us, we were, we're still a small startup. It was, you know, we're five years in, we're still growing. There was awareness that we wanted to build in the U S and this for the first time really helped build that awareness because we knew that we had to take advantage of something like this because we don't know how quickly it would come again. So we had the, the, the product engineering team was in Israel and pinged them like, hey, you got to be ready for this. It's coming. And, and they were ready. We were ready here in the U.S. to, to run with it. Yeah, I love that. 
And uh, so, so being to summarize, being lucky is the combination of being ready, having the right team, looking for the right opportunity, and correctly identifying it. And 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 even in your case, it's it's expanding your luck opportunities to where you're you're letting your community help uh, help generate that luck for you, right? You had that one writer who was out there who wasn't part of your, was she part of your sure. normal team? No, she wasn't. No. And and yeah. that was, that was another aspect of that. It's like being able to have the right people to quickly act on it is really important as well. But, but it was because you built that community as well that you had that luck. If you had not built that community and had a, a team of authors creating that content for you, that, that entire luck opportunity never would have even been possible. Exactly. Yeah. So build your community, build your team around it so that when the lightning strikes, you're ready to take advantage of it, be constantly looking for it and, and, and then jump on it immediately when it happens. You, you had her on good morning America the, the very next day. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really important to, to make sure you, when you see the opportunity to, to get on it as quickly as possible. So having some foresight to be able to differentiate between this is just, crap versus this is an opportunity, right? And mm -hmm. if you have the team around you already um, established, it's a little bit easier to act on something very quickly and uh, be able to execute against against time. So I'm curious of, of all of the different designers that, that took her picture and modified it to be what they felt was beautiful. Did any of the designers just take the original picture of her and tell her that she was beautiful the way she was? I don't think that happened. I think the closest uh, was a designer in the U.S. who kind of just made some surface level changes, like added like makeup or something. But every single one of them did something. And there were some of them were drastic. Like uh, we were kind of just like, whoa, like, do they really think that this is how uh, beauty is perceived in their country? And so, uh, no, none of them actually did that, although that would have been interesting. Um, I think she would have really appreciated that. Yeah. I think that's what I would have submitted is I would have just submitted her exact picture right back to her and just told her she was beautiful the way she was. She didn't need any makeup. She didn't need any special hairstyle or clothing. You know, she, she already had that beauty within. Yeah. Anyways. All right. Were there any questions you wanted me to ask that I did not ask? Yeah. So I, you know, we talked about content, we talked about um, community building. Um, you know, I'm curious whether that's for your audience or, uh, for yourself, like often with performance, I spent uh, a couple of years, good chunk of my last few years, thinking about how performance ties in with all of this. And often what happens is we start thinking about performance marketing, direct response as separate from all these other efforts in our community building. And those are looked at as brand opportunities that you just kind of uh, do it on your, do it separately. And what, I, what I'm realizing very quickly is if you want to build the right brand, you have to combine um, those two and it's really difficult. So I'm curious, you know, maybe this is for your community, um, is has anyone found success infusing both brand and performance um, in a way that speaks consistently towards who the brand is, how they um, position themselves, or is it always going to be separated that way? Like you have to go get customers as quickly as possible, but once they come in, there's a brand element that keeps yeah. them going a little bit longer. That is an eternal marketing and sales question. Yeah. And, and I... 
you know, I end up going a lot more towards the performance side and, and in today's world, it feels like you've got to go a lot more towards the performance side, but obviously do it in a way that builds your brand, right? The performance side is the short term. The performance side is what pays the bills today, but, but the long term, you know, the long game is, is the brand, right? As people come to know and, and like us and trust us and, and we build up that reputation you know, that's, that's obviously what's going to grow us long-term. What do you think about that? No, I, I definitely agree. And I've heard the, the term, you know, pays the bills uh, a number of times over the years. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've sort of explored performance as, as a, uh, something in my career that I felt like I needed as well. And then again, quickly realized like I'm not, that's not for me. Like I need to spend more time on the brand side. Like I really get yeah. excited about that on the community building side. You know, and earlier I mentioned, um, Airbnb and, and something that's really interesting about them as a friends for a long period of time, they did do performance early on. It was community. Then they, they spent a lot of time on performance. Um, and then lately you, you, you see them sort of pull back on the performance. Side. Obviously there's awareness for who they are as a brand. That's clearly a huge part of that. So if you look at the S one filings, it sets something around like 90% of the traffic is direct, meaning they've done a great job, not just on the performance side, but really early on on the community side, building awareness to the point where they don't have to run any performance ads ever again. It's just a, well, maybe not ever again, but in the short term, like it's something that most brands strive for. So I think thinking about community content early on to build those foundation gives performance an opportunity to go out there and talk about the brand in a way that you want them to versus starting just with hundred percent performance where there might be some messaging. That's not exactly how you want as a, as a brand yeah, to be told, right. but you get the customers, right? So there's, there, it's, you want to be able to do performance right away, but at the same time, you have to have some of those building blocks to, to for the performance team to be able to leverage. Absolutely. What do you feel is the biggest tectonic shift that is transforming the business landscape today? Um, the easy answer would be and how we how we sort of think about remote work. I mean, that's the easy answer, but I think it's a it, it's a little bit deeper than that. I think what's what's really shifting is this idea and, and sort of removing the stigma around uh, not just I want again it's, it's kind of like in the space of like burnout and mental health but there it's really that it's it's, it's brands and, and businesses realizing that their people are really important to the growth and not just like the human capital but actually spending time to understand who they are what are the things that gets them to tick and uh, if anything we've learned over the last years is that People just need time to recuperate. They need time to be able to step away. They need more flexibility. Um, and you see that across uh, giant companies like Google. You see it in small startups where they're starting to be more flexible in where people spend time, how they spend that time, and not focusing just on the output, but thinking about it as a as sort of a long-term opportunity and relationship with that um, team member. And uh, I think that's, that's going to shift over the next couple of years and and that becomes the ultimate drivers because you want to be able to recruit um good talent but you have to be able to also meet them where they are which is i need time to be able to spend time with family i need time to be able to recruit any time be able to do these things and that mental health aspect of it is going to be uh, a big factor there's a stigma that's been uh, removed from having a conversation about mental health i think it's really important um, as businesses start to think about talent and open up over the next six to nine months Thank you so much, Cash, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, luck plays a role in our success, but we need to be ready to take advantage of the luck that comes our way if we want to be successful. 
Number two, if we really want to be lucky, we need to be prepared and willing to act. Number three, when we're constantly looking for opportunities, we'll most likely have more luck. Number four, as soon as we recognize an opportunity, we need to be ready to jump on it as soon as possible, or we may miss it completely. To learn more about or connect with Cash, you can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can also visit his website at medium.com forward slash at CashMia. And there's links to each of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to identify and leverage the highest passions of our ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you luck in your business. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.